Let us turn back to the portion we have read together in the letter to the Romans, in chapter 8. Not in the portion we have read together, but in verse 3. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Our text divides itself quite clearly into two parts. First of all, the impotence of the law, what the law could not do. And then secondly, the provision of God to put things right. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Condemned sin in the flesh. And notice he sent, he said, he's made this provision for sin, for the correction of our state of sinfulness. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, for that purpose. In that order, then, first of all, the impotence of the law. Just look, first of all, at what the law can do. The law can show us what its own requirements of us are. It requires of us perfect obedience in thought, word, deed, and motive. It requires of us total obedience. Some think, some deceive themselves into thinking that they keep the law when they do not. They keep it in the measure that they give observance to its externals. But they forget the spirituality of the law. It requires of us obedience, not just in our outward life, requires of us obedience not just in our speech. It requires of us obedience not just in our thought life, but in the motives and intents of our heart. The motives that undergird the very thoughts that we think and the very words that we speak and the very actions that we perform. It's in the heart that we are parted from God. It's in the heart that we must be returned. The law is required for that correction. It requires total obedience in spirit and in truth. Well, the law can show us these requirements, and it shows us that short of that, we are failing. It requires, it shows us that we come short, as, as we are by nature. We come short. We fail to keep that law. It can show us further. It, it, it goes further and it 
condemns us as sinners who are breakers of the law. And that's as far as the law can go. It cannot help us to put things right by your own law-keeping. It cannot help us to save ourselves by your own works. That's the impotence of the law. It shows us that we are under the dominion of sin continually. And where paths go in that path. But it's not the fault of the law. The fault lies in us. The text brings that out. What the law cannot do through the weakness of the flesh. The fault is not in the law. The fault is in you and me. The fault is there that we have we are fallen creatures. By the fall, we took on a fallen nature, and that fallen nature just goes in that path of error and sin. Well, what the law could not do. God has made provision for the correction of. Let us look then at that divine provision that God has made. First and foremost, the sending of his own son. This was not something done on a whim. This is part of a plan that was from all eternity. With his all prescient eye, he saw mankind in his fallenness. For there was a speck of creation in being. He saw man in the corruption and fallenness of his sin. And he made provision then for the redemption of elect sinners. He chose a people out of that mass of that fallen constituency. He chose a people, didn't need to choose any, but he chose a people to himself. He gave them to his son. Conditions were met to be met by the son in our natures for the redemption of their souls. And in the fulfillment of time, God sent his own son into the world. That is the first part of the provision. It's a wondrous provision. Came in the miracle of the incarnation. God the Son took human nature to himself in the womb of the Virgin Mary. By the creative power of the Holy Spirit, that human nature was formed in the womb of Mary, and the Son took that nature into himself at that very moment. And in the process of nine months, normal time, the child born of us was one who is very God of very God and very man of very man. 
child born of her is one who is God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. A marvelous provision. Provision that will be the wonder of the Lord's people, not only in time, but throughout eternity. The greatest miracle that ever was in the, in the, in the mind of the Puritans. This miracle of the incarnation. They place that in the miracle of regeneration on a very high level. And notice, as I've already said, it was to be God and man in two distinct natures in this person. You have here the perfect mediator, the one who meets the, requ the, the requirement that God makes upon us as sinners, and the one who, in our nature, is to meet the requirements that we need as sinners to be right with God. And the provision there to be to be to be to be the one who stands in the place of God, the 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 the, the divine the requirement at the divine level here is he is very God, he, that he is he is uh, he is he is he is the man who is to represent the claims of God upon us. And these claims require not only that he be very man of very man, but that he be without sin totally. He is one who is unfallen. He couldn't be fallen because he was never in Adam. There's no tint of the fallenness of Adam with him. There's no tint of that sinfulness of that estate wherein to sin and the fall brought mankind. And your catechism tells you the, fall, the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the loss of the original righteousness, and the corruption of our whole nature. Well, there is nothing in the man Christ Jesus of the corruption of our whole nature, and there's nothing of the loss of original righteousness. He is unfallen. And not only is he unfallen, but he is one who is without sin in his life. He was in the world, in the, when the, the period that is in the world here, he could speak after 30 years in the world that the prince of this world, referring to Satan, always on the and always seeking to find a, a sin in the in the people and in, 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 in always targeting to find sin in us, he could say, The prince of this world cometh 
but you will find nothing in me, nothing of sin that the devil could point a finger at in his life, in thought, word, deed, or motive. And beyond that still, he is one who could not sin. was impossible for him to sin. Some people say uh, he was able not to sin, like Charles Hodge, for example. But uh, most of Reformed thinkers think that not just that he was able not to sin, but that he was unable to sin. It was impossible for him to sin because he is very God of very God. That's his passion. And as a God, he cannot sin. So as one who is the inner nature there then, without any of the taint of fallenness, without any inherent sin, and with that impossibility even to sin, he is one who represents God. But he also must represent man as the mediators. And although he must represent man, you might say, well, how can he possibly represent man when he's so holy, when he's so sinless, when it's so impossible for him to sin? Well, that is all true. But although there's that side true, our text tells us he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. No sin, but he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. What does it mean by made in the likeness of sinful flesh? Well, it certainly means this that it was that um, he came as near to us in our fallen natures as it was possible for him to come without himself being without himself having sin came as near as possible but not sin in him he identifies with us closely as a Fallen, as an unfallen husband, might identify with a fallen bride and take all her, uh, all her uh, debts to himself. He identifies as closely as that. He identifies as closely as that also by taking to himself all her sinless infirmities. Sinless infirmities like hunger, thirst. He identifies with us by being one who could be tempted in all parts, yet without sin. You might say, well, how could he be tempted if he was holy, if he was without sin? But that is a, that is a dangerous thought there. That's a false thought there. It's false to think that temptation can only touch one who is without sin. Remember, temptation came to Adam when he was in an unfallen state. So the Son of the Lord is one who can be tempted, although without sin, in the same manner as unfallen Adam was. 
and he can enter into all the tensions and agonies that are part and parcel of being tempted and resisting temptation. This is necessary that he might represent us, you see. An example of that is he could, he could suffer hunger pains. And you see the temptation there, the temptation in the wilderness. The, the spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And the devil put before him after 40 days of hungering and fasting, command these stones to be made into bread. Oh, how easily it was for him to do that as one who's a divine person. But he would not do that because that would be obeying the devil. That would not be doing the Lord's remit. He must resist. Now, with you and me, when, the, when temptation comes to us, we would give in very easily. And because we give in so easily, we don't enter into the tension and the agony of resisting. But with, the, with Jesus, he is sinless. He enters into the temptation. He meets the hunger pains, and he goes on meeting the hunger pains and entering into the agony and tension that is involved there. <laughs> You could take that a little further. We certainly, we don't have any other instance in the Bible where it says that he was tempted of the devil, except the temptation in the wilderness. But the Bible does say that after the temptation there, that he, the devil parted from him for a season. So we cannot rule out, but that there was more temptations. And I believe that one other, one other area of temptation was, well, you see it particularly at Gethsemane. What he faced on the one hand, the prospect of um, the loss of the the, con, the loss of the con, the, the loss of the conscious presence of God with them, the loss of the conscious love of God with them, that was sure that was going to be being made sin. That stood before him at the cross. The loss he would never lose. The, 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 in, in actual fact, the, the love of the Father would always be there, even in the cross itself. But to the Lord, there was going to be the loss of the conscious presence of that love. There was the loss of the love at that that level. That I'm saying loss of the Father's love against, on the one hand. the love that he must have for his people. Is he going to give up the love for his people in order that he might not, not lose that conscious love of the Father's presence? And we know that there were tensions there. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. He entered into the full agony 
of the temptation that was surely there. And it was necessary for him to be one who could enter into temptation. He was to be representing us as the mediator. It was necessary for him to be one who was who identified with us in our sin. It was necessary that he identified with us in our sinless infirmities. It was necessary that he entered, that he that he that he identified with us uh, in as I'm saying in um, the hunger pains, the loss, the the, the 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 cost there. It was necessary that he entered into this agony of love versus love, if I can put it like that. That was put before him at the cross, at, 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 at Gethsemane, and which he entered into on the cross itself. He was entering into our experience. He was entering into what was required to put things right on our side, as it was necessary that he would be holy and without sin and impossible to sin on God's side. You see, all this was necessary for him to be the mediator that you and I need. Stand in the Roman place of God and meet his requirements on us, and at the same time, meet in the requirements that we need to be right with God. And you see that further, and he was, he was um, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The two sides of the equation are there then in the, our mediators. Perfect meeting the requirements of God upon us in his holiness. Perfect in meeting the requirements that we need on our side. And fulfilling that perfection, it not, not just a perfect mediator, but a perfect mediation. A perfect mediation by a perfect mediator. What was necessary, what was necessary to put things right as we have it here, we were under the dominion of sin. Well, it was necessary that there would be one who would keep the law perfectly for a start. And that is the part of his mediation. He lived a life of perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. I've already mentioned the devil coming and finding no fault in him. But it was necessary further. He must not only meet that perfection of obedience that we need, but he must pay the penalty for our failures, our sinfulness in the requirements upon us. He must enter into Bearing the wrath and curse of God in the Roman place of the hell descending. And that brings you to Calvary itself. And that brings you to the, the mediation being fulfilled. Bearing that wrath and curse of God. The curse of God, as I've told you many times, I think, Indicating the loss, the, it, is the, it is the opposite of the blessing of God. To be blessed 
is to be brought into union and communion with God. To be cursed is the opposite of that. Although it's the same root word in the original language, to be blessed in that root word is to be brought into union and communion with God. To be cursed is to be expelled from the presence of God. That's what you will have at the last with the reprobate and with the blessed. Come ye blessed, inherit the kingdom. They are to be brought into union and communion. But the reprobate, depart from me, ye cursed. Christ must enter into that curse. And it was there that the cry arises, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? that we cannot enter into the depths of depths here, that we cannot plumb heights that we cannot reach. But here he was, he was the mediator, he was the, not just the perfect mediator, but affecting the perfect mediation. He is the scapegoat that you have in the Old Testament to fulfill the, the, he, the scapegoat of the type. He is the antitype of that scapegoat that was led into the wilderness by a fit man and there let loose never to be found again. He is the one who bears the curse that you and I deserve. He is the one who bears the sin that is ours. He bears that curse into the wilderness as it was and lets it down where it can never be found again for those who trust in him. When we lean upon him, that curse has been born. And it's there that the fulfillment is found whereby we are set, whereby there's the, there's the full propitiation of God's, the full propitiation of God's requirements upon us. He bore the wrath, he bore the wrath that the judgment of God justly requires against us as sinners. He bore it to the full in order that the mercy of God there can flow towards us in Christ. And only there. There, there is the condemning of our sin in the flesh, in his nature. There, there is the putting right of that in breaking the breaking the breaking the breaking the chains by which the dominion of sin holds us. These chains are broken in him, in his nature, in our nature, in him. And the provision of God then goes further, you see. Provision of God goes further. 
because Christ could have died on the cross and we would just that, that we'd still stand aloof to it all. Such is the nature of our sin. But God raises him after three days in the in the grave, three days in the tomb. He's risen. The receipt is given by God, as it were, of the acceptance of that once and for all sacrifice that he gave on the cross. And Christ uh, rises in the resurrection, ascends in the ascension, and enters into glory and is enthroned in our nature, God and the God-man there at the throne of the universe. There the Father and the Son sent the Spirit into the world, into the hearts and lives of sinners, to effect regeneration, the miracle of regeneration, being born again, passing from death unto life. And the spirit, as the spirit of life in the soul of the, of the believer now, the regenerate sinner, brings new desires and new, the, the new desires are of two, two kinds. The desire to serve God out of a true heart that we didn't have before, the desire to serve God out of a right motivation, out of a sense of indebtedness to what God has done for us, out of a sense of thankfulness for what God has done in my Roman place, not in not keeping the law as it were to as a pride or to to put God in my debt, but the other way round to a sense of indebtedness to him. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the rem, remnant of his inheritance, who does not hold anger forever because he delights in mercy? That's what is experienced there. The mercy of God as they are born again. This is a product of being born again, you come to realize the wonder of the wonder of it all, the mercy of God at such cost towards me, really set before me in Christ, and the new desires to serve him in that sense. And you see what's happened there, the chains by which we were held are broken, no longer under the dominion of sin. There is a desire to keep that law. And not only is there a desire, but the grace is given to enable us to keep that law. And it goes further still, when sometimes because there is sin still with us, when we fail to keep that law, there is the promise not to be, not to be abused, but a gracious promise if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The chains by which we were held, the chains of the dominion of sin, 
the chains by which we could not enter into the path of obedience in a right frame are broken by the sent spirit through the truth, giving us these desires to serve him out of a true heart, to worship him out of a true heart, to know him, that I, the beauty of the Lord, behold me and admire, and that I in his holy place may reverently inquire. That's a new desire also. The chains are broken. What the law could not do, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin. He broke these chains by which we were held in the dominion of sin. Broke them in Christ first and foremost. That's in our nature, in the inner flesh. But going further in the sending of the Spirit, enabling us that these chains should be broken in our own experience, in our own lives. These new desires to serve him out of a true heart, to worship him and to know him out of a true heart, to the glory of his grace. Amen. What more couldst thou have done than thou hast done for us? Giving the darling of thy bosom, sparing him not when he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Our sins put to his account, that now his righteousness might be put to ours. We thank thee for the free offer of the gospel that is set before us in Christ as the fulfiller. We thank thee that thou art still saying, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Receive us with the pardon of our sins, in our speaking and in our hearing. Come nigh with us and bless thy word to us. Make it as the bread of life to our souls. And all in Jesus' name. Amen.